All right, good. Um, let's look at some fun instances. So, David, I didn't send you verses, and I'm sorry, but I do have some. So if you're ready. Um, we're going to look at some interesting conversations in regards to the, um, the whole, what we've been talking about last week. We talked about some of the issues with gender issues in our community, in our culture, attraction issues in our culture, that kind of stuff. Um, and so um, I kind of talked about that from mostly a cultural perspective and, and used, talked about some biblical um, concepts in that as well. I do want to make sure and comment on one other thing that I did not get to last week, and, and that was the idea of attraction. So technically speaking, when someone says that they are homosexual or gay or whatever word they use, what they're supposed to be describing is an issue of attraction. I don't think I went into this in much detail, but what they're supposed to be saying is not what they're doing or what they've done, but what their attractions are. So I want to make sure that we as Christians come at this healthy and recognize that attractions, of course, are fantastically complex. Human being attraction issues are very, very complex. They, they even probably transcend personality issues. But attraction, what we find attractive and don't find attractive is super, super malleable. It changes day to day, moment to moment. What we see and expose ourselves to is hugely impacted. What culture throws in our face hugely impacts what we find attractive. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, Screwtape, the Demon, talks about how hell is where attractions, our cultural attractions, are determined. And it is based on, according to Screwtape, whatever is least possible within a culture. And so if everybody has to work outside, that's what everyone has to do just to stay alive, then being pale is going to be attractive. Because being pale is nearly impossible for anyone to do. But if everyone lives inside and we live under canned lights and we're all, none of us have to be outside ever, then you're going to have to try to figure out a way to be tan, even if you've got to go get spray tan, right? That you've got to, like, you literally, that tanning will then become what is, what is popular and attractive in the culture. If you live in a culture where no one has enough food, then being overweight is going to be attractive. Have you ever seen some of the Literally, they call it this, I'm not making up this word, the chunkified perspective that was supposed to be attractive in different times in history. Like, that was because everyone was starving to death, and so that became attractive. Whereas in our culture, where we, have, we, we turn away thousands and thousands and thousands of calories a day, um, then therefore, you're you know, looking like you're a heroin um, addict is the best shot you've got, right? And so that's the, it's always going to be this cultural um, opposite, and that seems to be the case. What is least possible, what is least feasible. And in today's world, of course, it doesn't even have to be possible. <coughs> Literally. Um, I have a friend who is, works for Neiman Marcus in there uh, as a graphic designer. And he, he loves nothing more than to send me pictures and show me what the person looked like before he got his little digital hands on them. And it's, un, I mean, it's, it has no bearing on reality. I was stunned to discover a few years ago, I think it was Tyra Banks or one of the other big name models like that who actually came out and talked about, you know, how they don't even wear makeup or, or do their hair for photo shoots anymore because that's all done by computer. And then she showed these big clamps, these big rubberized clamps that, that they use in, in live photo shoots so that if the model's facing the camera this way, that they have this huge, like, it looks like a motor clamp for an engine and they put it on them and it clamps their body in such a way back here and holds it in place that's off camera, and, or they just erase it later out of the camera shot. And I mean, literally, kind of nothing that we get seen on a magazine or even now, sometimes live, 
it doesn't have to be at all realistic. And so that's that certainly is a, a, a strategy of hell. Um, but uh, so to understand that, that the culture is throwing message, messages about attraction at us constantly. Um, and the more that they can make us feel unhappy with ourselves or unhappy with our spouses or, and by the way, mostly unhappy with ourselves, um, that they can get us to spend money to try to change those things. And, um, and meanwhile, you know, every other commercial is a weight loss program and the other one is food. Um, as a, <coughs> if you've ever noticed that, it is nuts how the mixed messages are unfair. Yeah, exactly. You go through the magazine. That's exactly right. They, they got both going at you at the same time. Um, it's an unwinnable game. That's why investing in another person intimately is more important than investing in them erotically. Um, there's nothing wrong with them, and that's a whole other teaching subject I won't get off on tonight. But, uh, so I do think that's important. But the truth is, no, the attraction issues are not at all static. Um, so someone who comes into my counseling office or wherever and says, you know, 15-year-old who says he's gay, and I ask him to define that. And by the way, you ask people who even claim to be homosexual to define that, and you will get, I mean, uh, it's unreal how different definitions you will get. We are not defining these things well. Because remember, even a definition is an outside source. And you remember that from last week. We don't, millennials don't, let postmoderns, not just millennials, don't like outside sources. We, we, we get to decide what it means. Um, and so, but I'll ask them, what does that mean? And so, the, you know, a young man will say, well, it means, it means I like guys better than girls. I mean, like, I'll bet it's not that simple. And so sure enough, I bet I can create a scenario where you would think a girl's pretty, a bit more attractive than a guy. So, and so I can do that and they'll be like, oh, I'm not gonna, it's, it's a little over the top. But so when I do it and they're like, okay, okay, yeah, I get under that situation. But it's like, right, because it's not so simple as that. Attraction is about this massive massively complicated um, coalescence of, of, uh, of, of, of um, traits, that, whether it's a person or a painting or a car or a sunset, that we like or don't like. It's this massively complicated series of, of tiny, tiny, tiny little <coughs> preferences. And those preferences can be changed in an instant with the words or thoughts or photographs, much less something sexually explicit can be changed in an instant. Um, and so uh, that's... We don't want to have an uncomplicated view of this. We want to recognize the world is trying to make it a simplified thing. It is not. Um, of course, we find different people attractive. And then on top of all of that, imagine what the heck does attraction have to do with moral decision-making? Um, so even if, you, even if we did ever understand attraction, which we never will, um, that still would have no bearing on what decisions we make, what moral decisions we make. And so <clears throat> I think that's an important way of coming at this is recognizing that. It's a very complicated conversation. Um, I, the, one of the examples I will use with people is when I was 15, if you'd come to me and said, hey, got the perfect chick for you. Um, you'll love her. She's awesome. She's like 45 years old. She's got five kids. Man, you'll think she's just the best thing ever. At 15, I probably have been like, wait, what? I mean, like, right? But now... There's a 45-year-old mother of five who I, I think is pretty attractive, right? Who uh, i got some pretty strong feelings for. Because attraction changes. And, and by the way, I, I don't so much find the same girls attractive that I did when I was a 15-year-old boy, right? That's not how that works. Our attractions change radically throughout our lifetime, again, day to day. 
Um, and so there's so many different examples of this. I won't even go into it, but I mean, I really could spend a lot of time showing you example after example after example of something you found attractive and then don't. Something that you would never think you would find attractive and then do, and, and the way that plays out. So <coughs> we don't want to get caught up too much. There it is. We don't want to get caught up in that too much. But so what we talk about when I'm talking with somebody who comes in and makes a claim about homosexuality, what I talk with them about is identity. Um, because attraction is a really foolish way to determine an identity um, because it's so changeable. And so, you know, that's, I have this kind of nasty habit, especially with adults who, who want to argue about it, say like, yeah, but I find men, say if a guy says I find men more sexually attractive than women, I, it's hard for me not to just say, so? I mean, what the heck does that have to do with anything? I've, I've never bought my favorite car. I don't steal the one I like better than the one I have now. That's two totally different questions. Of course that changes throughout. It's just a constant thing. So don't buy into the world's mindset that this is just a static, simple thing. It changes radically day to day, moment to moment for all of us. Um, anyway, all right. But I do want to show you a concept that's really interesting. Could you pull up Leviticus 19.19? 19? <coughs> Sorry, I'm coughing. Um, Leviticus 19.19. 19. This is one of those really strange ones that we don't understand, do we? Look at this instruction from God. And he's very clear about it. Do not mix <clears throat> these things. Don't let your cattle breed with a different kind. Don't sow your field with two kinds of seed. Don't wear a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of material. <clears throat> Most of us are wearing garments right now made of two different types of material. So we're directly in, in defiance of the Leviticus 19 law, which is totally fine, by the way. Leviticus 19 law has no holding over us. Um, we'll look at that a little bit later, hopefully. But this is, a, <clears throat> this is an important teaching by God. Now, why would God put this in place? This is clearly a weird, arbitrary law. There's nothing moral involved here. There's nothing hygienic involved here. There's nothing health-related involved here. God has arbitrarily picked this law and said, hey, don't do this. And he does it a few times. In Deuteronomy 22, we see it again, and it happens again. Why? One thing you need to know about the Levitical law is one purpose of the Levitical law was to give a constant daily reminder of certain things. And so his people, he wanted his people to remember something. The Levitical law is similar to, say, like baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. It has no efficacy. It does not affect anything. But it is a picture of something. It's a parable of something. It's meant to teach us something. We believe communion is the same way. Communion does not save you. It is a picture of something meant to remind you of something. That's, that's the idea. This is what part of Levitical law was as well. One of the main messages of the Levitical law is some things aren't other things. Okay? It seems obvious, but that's one of the things. Some things aren't other things. They are what they are, and the other thing is what it is, and they're not both the same thing. A lot of the laws, this is one of the main teachings of the Levitical laws. Remember, some things aren't other things. Now, anyone tells you, <coughs> this clearly teaches that. Don't mix two things that aren't supposed to be mixed. This thing is this thing, and that thing is that thing. Don't mix them. Why would God be so emphasizing this Levitical law to his people, this message, 
Some things aren't other things. Some things aren't like other things. Some things are completely different from other things that they may seem a lot like, but they're not like it. Why would he want his people to be reminded of that every day? What do you think? Okay. One is, Israel as a nation was not like other nations. They, weren't, they, they may seem like other nations, but they're not other nations. They looked like other nations, but they're not other nations. They are a people distinct. You are another type of people. You're not like the other people. And I want you to be reminded of that. Okay, what's the other one? That's right. And I am a God who's not like other gods. <laughs> I'm not like them. They, the, the other people have gods. No one, you don't have me. I have you. That's how this works. I am the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I'm not like the other gods. So don't have other gods equal to me. Certainly not above me. These are two things that God wanted his people to remember constantly. Some things aren't like other things. This is one of them. <clears throat> now, if you can, pull up Leviticus 11. Um, wow, 1 through 10 is kind of long, but pull it up and we'll glance at it. If you don't mind. Keep going. Some things you can eat. Keep going. This is kind of fun when you see them. So there's these distinctions. You can eat things that have a parted hoof and chew the cud. You can eat those. Keep going. But look at that. Among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you can't eat those. Now, that's not arbitrary. So if it, if it chews the cud and has a parted hoof, you're good. But if it chews the cud or has the parted hoof, you cannot. Why? Because things that are both aren't clearly one or the other. It's either this or it's not this. It's not mixture. We don't do mixtures. Okay? That's the idea here. Okay, keep going. We've got all kinds of examples. It starts sounding like Monty Python on the Holy Grail here. Keep going. Oh, look, there's another one. Keep going. Now, the way rabbits were unclean to them. Rabbits are a phenomenal food source. Why would God not let his people have rabbits? Because rabbits chew the cud, but they don't have a hoof. So they're out. Okay, good. Pigs are out. You know, badgers were out. Don't even touch it. They're unclean. Keep going. How about these? Everything in the water that has fins and scales, whether sea or river, you can eat those. But if it doesn't have fins and scales, that's detestable to you. It's a big no-no. So, tilapia, good. Eels, bad. Catfish, bad. I know, right? <clears throat> How about shrimp, crabs? No. Why? We know now there's nothing inherently bad about these things. You, people you say like, well, but you can get really sick from pigs. Like, well, you can get really sick from almost anything if you don't treat it or refrigerate it properly. This is not about God protecting his people from trick or whatever, right? I mean, it's not, it's our, it's not our salmonella. It's none of that. It's, this, is, this is him saving his people from mixing things and reminding them constantly. This is a fish. 
This is kind of a fish, but it's not really a fish, so it's no good. Whether it's edible or not is irrelevant to God here. That's not the issue. The issue is, this is all fish. This is only partly fish, so we're, getting, we're not doing it. You don't mix certain things. It's a constant reminder to the people every time they had to throw eels back or catfish back out of their nets. When all the pagans all around them were eating those. Every time that they weren't able to eat the pigs that apparently pagans were growing or were raising all around them, it was a reminder to them, but this isn't for us. Is it because pigs are bad? No, it's not because pigs are bad. It's because that was a reminder to the people, you're not like other people. <laughs> By the way, understanding this, <clears throat> you can totally see why later Jesus Christ clearly communicates to his disciples and then later again, because they didn't get it, to Peter. Listen, now you can eat anything. Why? What had changed? He had changed. One of the things he had changed is what decided who his people were. Was it what race they were? No, now it was faith. Right? That changed. And so this part of the law became absolutely unnecessary. We don't need this constant reminder that we aren't like other people. Because the truth is, we are like other people. The only thing that makes us different is that God has saved us. <coughs> Pretty wild. How about Deuteronomy 22.5? Now you begin to, this begins to make sense. Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Why not? Why would God, why would God care? Same thing. Women are women, and men are men. We don't mix stuff in Israel. We don't mix it. You don't take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and squeeze them together. You don't do that in Israel because if you start doing the habit of that, you're going to think, oh, you know what? We can take a little bit of Baal and a little bit of Asherah and a little bit of Yahweh and we can squeeze those all together and make our own thing, which in fact is exactly what the Israelis did. Oh, you're going to think, oh, we can take in some of these people and intermarry with them and some of these people and intermarry with them, which is exactly what they did. But what the law was meant to remind them constantly, don't do this. So how do we know which of these laws to keep and which of these laws to not keep anymore? I'm going to help you out with that in just a second. But understand, that is, that is one of the <coughs> most important concepts <clears throat> in the Levitical law. And the reason the Levitical law sometimes makes no sense to us is because it wouldn't apply to us anymore. It doesn't, th these parts of it don't. God doesn't need to keep teaching us this lesson. So, okay? I bet you didn't know that about the Levitical law, did you? That's one of the big ones. Now, and by the way, I'm not going to get into it too much, but even the concept of unclean, unclean, again, was not about dirty or clean. In fact, though maybe you could make the argument that the Jewish people were hygienically more advanced than the people around them, that's, that's clearly not what the cleanliness laws are really about um, because they are required to do some things that would not, in fact, make them necessarily cleaner. Um, the whole thing of washing the outside of a cup rather than the inside of a cup, for example, doesn't make a whole lot of sense if what God is doing is teaching his people hygienic rules. The fact that he did not introduce to them soap, which would have been an important part of hygienic rules if that was his main purpose. He had them washing their hands, yes, but with water running across their hands that was running down their arms, 
not necessarily the best way to do that from a doctor's perspective. That was not his main purpose. Again, his main purpose was this idea of set apart, different, holy, significant for a specific purpose. That's a big part of what's going on here. He wants them to remember you are set apart. You are different. There's a holy day. There's a holy city. There's a holy place. You are holy people. There is a holy land. Holy, every single time I just used it there, means sacred, set apart, distinct, not like everything else. This is a constant reminder to them. So when they were unclean in some certain way, that didn't mean bad. It didn't mean they felt bad. It didn't mean they were mistreated. When we read unclean, we think God is like, that seems totally unfair. God is saying a woman, you know, a woman gives birth to a girl and she's unclean twice as long than when she gives birth to a boy. That doesn't seem right. Well, if unclean means bad, then that would be a bad, you'd think that'd be a bad interpretation. But if unclean just means reminder that you are set apart, a reminder that certain things aren't other things, a reminder that there is a holiness around you, well, you can interpret it in a totally different way then if you want to. That's significant. I'm not going to get into... Female feminism issues, but I will tell you this: uh, the Bible is the Old Testament was radically progressive for its time, and in some ways more progressive than we are now. For example, um, the laws about rape and sex between unmarried people was so advanced for its time; it greatly trumps our laws now. Um, I think almost every woman, if you read them and understood them, would prefer us go to the Old Testament Jewish rape laws. Because, by the way, for the, in the Old Testament Jewish rape laws, uh, the woman's word was taken as higher than the man's word. Um, and uh, a man convicted of rape on the word of a woman uh, was pretty much always executed. And executed, by, and by executed, some of you men will appreciate this, executed means turned over to the male members of your family. Um, if, you, if you raped or assaulted a woman and, and you, you had to instantly go on the run, if you made it to a court before her family, her males of her family caught up with you, and if they did, you were probably dead. Um, and if you, if, they, if you made it to the court first before that, so there's no arresting, there were no police. You're headed to the courts in an effort to save your life. Um, and you make it to the court, and the court decides on her word that you, that you did assault her. They just turn you, they just kick you out of the courtroom and lay, send you back into the hands of her family, who are now totally justified in taking your life. Um, I'm guessing there wasn't a lot of it in Israel. Um, it was encouraged. Um, killing people who assaulted people was now, it was then legal in the hands of the people. Pretty wild. Um, I do want to talk about um, the different stances, some of the different stances we see in regards to sexuality um, in Scripture. One of the things you will hear sometimes in the um, homosexual movement is that Jesus never referenced homosexuality, and that's not accurate. Um, so here's the issue, though. Jesus never straight up uses the word homosexual. The, I mean, And by that, I mean he doesn't use the Greek or Aramaic word either that, that we have in Scripture. He may have many times. We have very few of the stories about Jesus. But, but if you understand Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, he clearly did talk about him. Um, so let's look at a couple of Jesus' stances on this thing. Uh, Matthew 5, 27 through 31. So Jesus' stance on 
these issues in regards to sexuality. Um, you've heard it's that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, go ahead. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And then, you're good, you're good. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's the idea. 31, let's get 31 too. Um, we'll stop there, just for ease's sake. The idea here, Jesus' stance on divorce, for example, was that divorce was the result of hardened hearts and that it was never part of God's original intention. Jesus is the one, do you know Jesus is actually the one who says the phrase, what God has put together, let no one tear apart, let no one set asunder, whatever version you had in your wedding. Um, that wasn't an Old Testament teaching. That was Jesus' teaching. Once God has joined something together, which is what marriage is, no one should ever take it apart. He teaches about that multiple times. He has a very strong opinion about marriage, except for sexual immorality. There's, he, he offers no other excuse for divorce. Now, here's what's interesting. And look at this. Matthew 15, 16 through 19. By the way, the divorce laws were created by God for the Jewish people to protect women. Um, a man could not divorce a woman and then get her back. In order to divorce her, he had to hand her a piece of a document that said, I am divorcing you. And at that moment, he had no authority or power over her at all. In fact, in some cases, he was at that point ineligible to ever marry her again, no matter what. It was a once and done deal. If you divorced her, it was over, it was done. She was free of you, is the way it was actually treated. It's actually treated in the Mosaic law. <laughs> but look at this. So Jesus is teaching. Um, so, are you still without understanding? Keep going. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach is expelled? So he's pointing out that what you eat isn't what makes you unclean spiritually. That's not what defiles you. Now, we're not talking about ceremonial uncleanliness here. That's the Old Testament concept. This is, Jesus is saying, ceremonial uncleanliness is not what's relevant. Moral, spiritual uncleanliness is what matters. So, if you eat something, it just goes through you. How would that make you morally impure? Of course, it could make you ceremonially impure, but how would it make you morally impure? That's what he's asking. Okay, keep going. <laughs> what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That's what defiles a person. So it isn't what goes into your mouth that defiles you. What's come out of your mouth that defiles you. Now look, notice this. Now he's going to give us a list. Keep going. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. Keep going. These are what defile a person. But, no, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That's what defiles a person. Good. Evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, covetous, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's from a different translation. Now, notice what Jesus has just done. He has just clarified for us which of the Levitical laws apply to us, to his followers at least at that time. Was it the ceremonial uncleanliness laws, like the eating laws? Clearly not. He has just made that very, very clear. 
It's not what goes into your mouth that decides this. It's not the washing of your hands that decides uncleanliness. That's not how this works. These are the laws that we do need to apply. The laws that talk about what comes out of the heart. That's what we need to apply, right? So, you can look later if you want to, but when a first century rabbi uses the term sexual immorality, what he's referencing is Leviticus 18. That is the Jewish teaching on sexual immorality is Leviticus 18. So the Levitical law as a whole is not something that we have to all follow. We don't have to not cut our sideburns. Um, we're allowed to eat bats. I don't recommend it, but you're allowed to, right, by religious standards. Those are kind of, those kind of things. That being said, the, apparently the laws that he does want his followers to apply are the ones that are morally based, like sexual morality. Well, there's, there's a handful of things that are very clearly sex, described as sexually immoral for any... The reason Jesus doesn't need to go into more detail about sexual morality is because everyone in his audience would have known what he's referencing when he references sexual immorality. Any Jew to this day, you reference sexual immorality. And when we say in the church, where do you go? If you want to study love, where do you go in the Bible? Good. First Corinthians 13 and, first, and John, right? If you want to study faith, where do you go? Hebrews 11, right? These are passages that a lot of people will automatically know. If you say, where do I go to study what God finds sexually immoral? Any Jew will say Leviticus 18. Technically, and like 20. But Leviticus 18 is the main one. So a handful of things. Here are the things that are strictly forbidden in Leviticus 18. Sex with someone you're not married to. Sex with someone that you are related to, even if it's by marriage. <clears throat> Not your own wife, like <laughs> related to them only by marriage. Like it specifically lists, like I think it specifically lists your father's wife. If she's not your mother, you still can't have sex with her. Sorry. Um, those two. Third, and by the way, that, that kind of stuff would have happened all the time with the mortality rate that probably existed. You, it wouldn't have to be a high divorce rate, a high mortality rate. So again, sex is someone you're married to, you're not married to. So adultery and fornication would fall under that. Um, premarital sex or extramarital sex. Um, that's one. And then, like I said, sex with someone that you are related to, um, that's out. Sex with an animal, specifically listed. And by the way, I love to comment on that one, not in detail, obviously, but... I love to comment on the fact that it's amazing to me that people sometimes will refer to the Bible as a squeamish book. So I'm doing premarital counseling with couples, and I have this sexual attitude survey. Some of y'all have been through this. Um, it is, it's, it's an outrageous 70-question attitude that you're like, how do you feel about different examples of sex? And it has everything. I mean, everything's in there. And so um, without going into further detail, it's, it's all there. And so in that part of that conversation, what's amazing to me is so many people have been raised in church to think of the Bible as squeamish. Well, the reason it doesn't mention all these different things you could do sexually is because, you know, it's, it's the Bible. So don't say things like that. Catch, the Bible specifically forbids sex with animals. It is not a squeamish book. If the Bible wants to forbid something sexually, it does very clearly. If you're, if you're willing to walk down the path of bestiality, you're, you're pretty much willing to talk about anything. The Bible is. So that's the third, I guess. So sex with animals, out. Um, 
sex with someone of the same gender, out. Same sex. Males and males together, females and females together, out. Um, I, think that, I think that's all of them. I feel like there's a fifth one. Oh, oh, sex. Um, at that time, it also would include sex during um, ceremonial times of uncleanliness which I don't know exactly what to do with that one since Jesus has kind of canceled the ceremonially uncleanliness issues. So I don't really know, and I don't know that anyone knows exactly how to, whether that should still fall or shouldn't still fall. Luckily, we serve a God of grace. So. Um, but those are the teaching of those four, at least, are very clearly taught. And other, I think today's world, we could say sexual engagement, you know, more religious behavior is not a re- is not a acceptable reason to engage in sex outside of God's plan. So... That sounds weird to us today. It would not have sounded weird back then when temple prostitutes were, as we talked about last week, that was how it was done. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27, his thoughts on it are made very clear as well through the Holy Spirit. This is a little bit euphemistic, I know, but it's clear what he's talking about. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, their women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Even more clear is that that wasn't clear enough in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 and 1 Timothy 1, 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. That's back to that again. Not idolaters, not adulterers, not men who practice homosexuality, not thieves, not greedy, not drunkards, not revilers, not swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 10. Um, it's a little bit of a tough passage there for know for sure exactly um, when it says men who practice homosexuality. Um, it, that, what's also wrapped up in that is maybe men who act like women. Um, it's an interesting Greek word that it's hard to know. Sometimes it means that, sometimes it doesn't. It's two separate words. Um, anyway, that's Paul's perspective um, on that. Let's see. Paul's teaching. I should comment on Paul also has very clear teaching in regards to sexuality within marriage, which is that sex is supposed to be happening within marriage. Um, it's very clear. He's very clear about that. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman, in his opinion. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband and do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Um, again, that is a, apparently it's a healthy ingredient for God's standard for marriage, um, according to Paul, which I think we can trust, right? So those are some of the different teachings. I do believe that the Bible is clear. Um, it, it's an interesting thing for me because I, I'm not one of those people who's weirded out by homosexuality. Um, it doesn't have some you know, weird, creepy effect on me, but it is, I believe, clearly taught scripturally to be sin. That being said, it is not, of course, any more or less sin than any other sexual immorality is sin. And so viewing pornography... Um, would certainly fall. In fact, the Greek word for sexual immorality is porneo. That is the, that is the Greek word. Um, so that's going to count as sexual sin, adultery, um, 
people engaging sexually before they're married or with someone other than who they're married to. These are all equivalent in every way since to homosexuality. As a church, we, we have the, the kind of the view that we have taken at this point is that we know that if we know someone is living in a condition where they are embracing sin, then they can come to the church, they can be at the church, we welcome them, but we do not have them join the church. Um, that that's the, and that would not, and so far I, ha, I have yet, at least here, not had that conversation with anybody who is in a homosexual relationship, but have had that conversation with numerous people who were cohabitating, who were living together but not married. And so um, to tell them, I'm sorry, but we're going to ask you to wait to join the church when you're married. The only reason for joining the church is so you can lead and teach in the church and serve. And so someone who is embracing sin, we would not want them doing that anyway, leading and teaching and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm a little bit different from a lot of pastors. I am will. I am. Some pastors are happy with this. Some aren't. But I'm uh, under the right conditions. I'm happy to marry somebody who is who, couple who is cohabitating. Um, I figure that fixes the problem. So I'm not like I can help you get past this. I tell every one of them. By the way, some of you have even been those people. I, I tell them we're we'll be sitting out there and I'll go like, now here's the deal. I mean, you're here. I'm here. The secretary's right there. She's a witness. I can marry you right now. Like, we can do this now, then you can go downtown, and you can go get that marriage license and bring it back, and I'm still signing marriage licenses. There may come a day I won't anymore, but that's another conversation. We, I'll just say it this much. We should have never let the state be involved in marriage. That was a huge mistake. We didn't know it. We were ignorant, but it was a huge mistake. Um, why they have any say in it at all is beyond me. But um, So that's the, that's the stance we take as Christians. Um, we are called... To, I'm working on some material as far as um, what sometimes is called church discipline, although I'll come at it from a weird angle. But um, uh, that's, we are called and encouraged to engage with people who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ, but who are engaging with or embracing sin in their life. We are called to confront them. That is not an option for us. We are supposed to go to them and say, this is a problem. Matthew 18 says, if they sin against you. So that clearly doesn't mean just some sin, like the Ten Commandments, sin. It means if they sinned against you, you go to them and you should say, hey, this is a problem. That's what we're called to. If, if they won't listen to you, then you go find someone else who loves them. Um, and you go tell them again. And then if they won't listen to you, then you involve the leadership of the church. Um, that's what the Bible teaches us. And then the rest of church discipline is about when step three doesn't work. Then what do you do? And so that would be the way we would encourage you to engage with people is, is however that plays out to say, hey, we have this, we have this, we have this. And then if they don't listen to church leadership, that's when you have to have conversations like, well, now what do we do? Which is much, much harder. Hopefully it will not be an issue. Um, as Christians, as individuals, we love people who are engaged in sin, who are even embracing sin. If they claim also to be a Christian, we confront them, and there are certain ways you deal with it. If they don't claim to be a Christian, then certainly we should in no way be offended by them, by their sin, right? I mean, they're slaves to sin. So we should never, and the Bible is pretty clear about that too. There's no point. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 5, maybe 2 Corinthians 5 off the top of my head. Um, makes it very clear. We don't need to confront non-believers. Paul tries to make that very clear. 1 Corinthians 5. Um, 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world, not the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to leave the world. But I am writing with you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that's the brethren concept, a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with that one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not, is it not those inside the church whom we are supposed to judge? Let God judge the outside. So he's very clear about that. Any questions in regards to we, we want to, in your life, and your family, you want to love people no matter what sin they're embracing? You don't have to help them embrace it. That's not what we're talking about. But we can love them and even accept them as being created in the image of God and worthy of our love. Um, that's important. Yes, yes, sir. So on, on earth, certainly different sins. The question was, do different sins have different consequences? I think you mean like eternal. Yes. Okay. I, I, I've not found anything scripturally that would allow me to really argue that at all. My, my sense is that sin divides us from the character of God and that we are either forgiven of all of our sins or we, or we are forgiven of none of our sins. If we are forgiven of none of our sins, then we are hopelessly lost. If we are forgiven of all of our sins, then we are wonderfully found, no matter what the sin is. Obviously, on earth, different sins have different consequences. Where we're fighting the battle has different consequences um, at all different levels. There's some weird, Paul talks about, and, and other places talk about how sexual sin is different in that it's a sin against your own body as well as against God, but I don't know that we know exactly what that would mean. I mean, it would, it would certainly, that, that gives it a different heading, but it would certainly, that's why I kind of lump all sexual sin together in that whatever that means, that applies to all sexual sin, not just homosexuality, but any sexual sin. And we can see as a culture, by the way, if there's one thing that we should all be able to agree on in America, it's that we've messed this whole sex thing up, Right? I mean, okay, clearly it has spun out of our hands. It got out of control. We didn't know what we were dealing with. You know, we, we thought it was an easy dinosaur, but it's really a velociraptor, and it got out, and it's ravaging everything and everyone, and we've got to somehow get it back in the cage. I think that's clearly the case. The, the fact that, I mean, I'm telling you that, that lost people don't, this is one of those lies that the world tells, lost people don't somehow understand sex better than Christians. And by the way, you you know the statistic about how you know people get married they then they don't have sex very often anymore that whole that whole lie. So it turns out actually people who are married on average engage sexually something like five or six times more often than sexually active single people. And so not just if you take all the non sexually active single sexually active single people still aren't having sex nearly as often as us married people are. So on average. Um, so that's just another, it's unreal. You can pretty much count on if Hollywood or Madison Avenue is teaching you something about sex, it's, it's wrong. Um, but no, I do not think there is a difference. I, I don't see it as far as eternal consequences. You are saved from your eternal consequences by Jesus Christ, by the eternal consequences of sin by Jesus Christ, not which sins you committed. Um, 
Most of our concepts of levels of hell come from Dante, not from the Bible. Um, so, may there be different consequences in hell? There, there might be. I mean, God is a just God. You could certainly see that happening. But again, I think that would have more to do with the grievous nature of the sin than which sin, if that makes sense. But no, there's essentially almost nothing to stand on biblically to do that. So Christians should not be proclaiming like this. Somehow homosexuality is the worst of the sins. It is sin. And Bible-believing Christians should flee sin every chance we get. Now, catch and keep in mind, by the way, homosexual behavior is sin. Lust is a mental behavior. It's not an attraction. It's a mental behavior. It is the choice to dwell. It is the desire to possess. So attractiveness is not the issue. It is not a sin to find a member of the same sex attractive. That is a temptation, not a sin. Any more than it's a sin to find a member of the opposite sex attractive. That is not what makes homosexuality sin. That just it means that's the direction of the temptation. So someone who finds a member of the same sex attractive is not that is not what it is homosexual behavior that would be sin. So if I didn't make that clear enough earlier, let me I wanted to make that point again. We're really out of time. Let me try to real quick. Okay, we'll we'll wait on that one. Um, yes. Right. Else, there's this this tagline that goes on along with it of being hateful right. and not loving, which seems a little bit strange to me. But I'm sure you probably had to address that. I mean, a parent with their child denounces something their child does that is wrong. That no one would think that you didn't love your child because you disciplined them. But right. there's definitely this concept that if we say we think that's wrong, that's now that's now perceived as right. a hateful act. Maybe because it's an adult talking to an adult. The the issue of Right. The issue of the calling something wrong is hateful. That proceeds from the postmodern metaphysic we talked about last week, which is no one gets to tell anyone anything from the outside. So it is the issue is you must be, by definition, if you tell somebody what they're doing is wrong, you must be judging them. You must be condemning them. You must be something because you're making it about them. No matter how much you say, like, this is about you, this is about your behavior. Well, because you're coming from the outside, and telling them something. that Therefore, it's an, you're being an external source of something for them that you don't have the right to be. And so the idea of declaring something wrong being offensive. And so now what that means is because you're supposed to unquestioningly, without reservation, support whatever someone says about themselves. Um, no matter how delusional it is, no matter how crazy it is, no matter how backwards it is, no matter how evil it is, you're supposed to support that. Um, and so that is that is... That has more to do with political correctness and postmodernism than anything else, which is what Paul put to. You're not going to win it. Right. Right. Yeah, all you can do is explain it, but if someone is in that mindset, they're not going to, they're probably not going to listen. You just have to make sure, because in the end, we answer to God, not other people in the culture. And so we have to be loving while condemning things that aren't loving. I mean, you can say, this is bad for you, therefore, I hate it, just like I would hate methamphetamine for you because it's bad for you. I would hate a car accident for you because it's bad for you. I'm not trying to judge you by telling you you can't have a car accident. I'm just saying I would hate a car accident for you because I think it's bad for you. That's what 
we do for people we love, is we hate bad things for them as part of loving somebody. Again, I don't, don't expect to win that because it has nothing to do with logic or rationality. So, okay, we are done. We better head out.